Well, this morning we're continuing through the Gospel of John. And last week we looked at uh, this moment after Easter Sunday where Jesus came and he appeared to the disciples uh, behind locked doors in a locked room and he said to them, peace be with you. And he, he kind of challenged them and encouraged them and commissioned them to go and keep doing all the things that he had been doing. But it was noted then, it's noted again here, that, that there was only 10 of them. Thomas was missing uh, and Judas was no longer in the picture. Uh, and so this morning we come to a text where Thomas shows up, and I'm sure we all understand or have heard the name Doubting Thomas, and, and so we get to see kind of the couple moments that have summed up this poor guy's life. Let me read for us. John 20, I'm going to start at verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them, with the disciples, when Jesus came. And so the other disciples were telling him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Strong words. A week later, the disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. And even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you've seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now, I, I've, I've said it before, and you've probably heard it a number of times, but I think Thomas kind of gets a bad rap. Right? We, we've got these couple of verses right here, and, and all of a sudden, Doubting Thomas, that's all we've known him as for, for centuries and centuries and centuries. But just a few chapters earlier, we did mention this when we were earlier in the book of John. Jesus is saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to go into this thing, and Thomas is the one that stands up and said, let's go and die with him. He, he, was, he was committed. We also know, uh, tradition tells us, so we, I guess we don't actually know, but tradition tells us that following this time, Thomas left Jerusalem and headed east. And there are little Thomas churches planted all the way to India. And someone told me last week, and I was reminded again at, in the first service, that there are plenty of people named Thomas in India. So Thomas wasn't just a doubter. He was a missionary. He did lots of things, lots of good things, even though we, we just picture him in this one moment. Thomas gets a bit of a bad rap. He's told by the other disciples, we've seen the Lord, things are happening, we're not totally sure. Maybe, maybe he'd been told that the grave, was, the tomb was empty already too. And Thomas looks at them and says, exactly what, if we're honest, every single one of us says, people don't come back from the dead. You guys, you're wrong. That can't be. This is not something that happens. Now, sometimes we today in our 21st century wisdom can look back at other times and cultures and look at people of history with, with a bit of arrogance. And we, we look at the, these eras gone by and, and people and civilizations and assume that because they were less educated or educated differently than we are today, they believed a bunch of things that we no longer do. So they could be tricked, they could be duped by someone saying, oh, somebody came back from the dead. But nobody expected people to rise from the dead. That was not a thing that happened. Now imagine the position Thomas is in, in these verses. 
For whatever reason, he was away from the other disciples that first Easter Sunday when Jesus appeared to them. And I suspect that it wasn't too long after the ten encountered Jesus that they, they either went out and found Thomas or maybe Thomas came back. We, we read, they found him and said, we saw him. We saw the Lord. He was here. And he said, no, 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 that can't be right. What do you think, though, went through Thomas's mind in the week between verse 25 and 26? So often when I've read this text, I see, okay, there's this one thing happens. Jesus comes. They find Thomas. Thomas says, I don't believe it. Jesus is there. I missed that little the next week. Seven days later, eight days later. So Thomas is, 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 is wrestling with this for a week. I'm sure that the disciples told him more than the one time that they saw the Lord. I'm sure that they tried to negotiate with him or bargain with him or tell him, no, no, Thomas, remember, these things were happening. And he said this, and then he showed up. And he was, Thomas was pretty blunt, right? When they first told him, he said, unless my, I actually stick my fingers in the wounds, forget it. I'm not going to believe it. But then a day goes by. And another day goes by. And they're still saying, no, no Thomas, we saw him. And Mary says, Thomas, I saw him. I wonder if he started to question himself. Those guys, they're, they're crazy. This doesn't happen. Right? For a week, this happened. Then we find the disciples together again, locked together again, which is interesting. And once again, Jesus came and stood in their midst. And he gives them the exact same greeting. Peace be with you. And I wonder if the, the, the disciples who had saw Jesus the week before were still just as freaked out when he showed up in the room the second time. And again, this is, this is so much more than just a, hey guys, how's it going, greeting. When Jesus said, peace be with you, we talked about this more last week, so I won't go into it too much, but it's a summary of Jesus' whole earthly ministry. Say, I, I, I've come to bring peace, and so now I'm almost done. Here, have peace. It's a, a pointing to the, the inbreaking of God's shalom, this long-expected, long-anticipated God bringing his kingdom to fr- fruition, pointing towards a time where we will, we will live with God again as we were created to, as we were meant to. It's a, it's a phrase that's preparing them for commissioning to go out and do something. And so maybe the, the 10 that heard this the week before have had some time to sort of wrestle with these words and put some of these pieces together and understand it a little bit. And, and, and they've got this week of reflection and, and, and the stories are lining up and what Jesus did is kind of lining up with what they've seen. And Jesus shows up in the room and he hones right in on Thomas, it seems, doesn't it? He greets everyone. Peace be with you. And he goes straight to Thomas. Here's the wounds. Now what? He said, Thomas, you, you wanted proof. Here, here's exactly what you wanted. Here's the wounds. Touch them. Don't be faithless, but believe. He says, Thomas, let's move you. You tracked with me for however long, for the years. You saw me do all these things. Let's move you from this place you're stuck in now of unbelief to a place of belief. Now, we don't actually know if Thomas took Jesus up on the offer and actually went and like poked the wounds or not but I suspect if it was me I wouldn't have gone anywhere near those things I would have fallen flat on my face and said exactly what he did my Lord and my God he was saying not just saying oh sir out of respect saying uh, thank you for showing me this He was calling Jesus Lord, and then he called Jesus God. There's not much getting around what Thomas was saying in this moment. 
He falls, maybe falls to his knees, and he's worshiping Jesus as the Son of God here. And this, really, this declaration is, is another piece, a big piece of the climactic conclusion of John's gospel. Remember how the gospel of John started. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. I got that back, backed up. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. A couple verses down, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, we observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And now at the end, Thomas looks at the word that was with God and the word that was God, the word that became flesh. And he says to him, my Lord and my God. It's like bookends on the whole book. And Jesus replies and looks to him and says, because you've seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not yet seen, or who have not seen and yet believe. Now, I'm not sure that, I, I don't think that Jesus is questioning Thomas's allegiance. He's not questioning his belief here. He's maybe calling him out a little bit. I think Jesus can do that. But he then, uh, more importantly, gives a statement. Blessed are those who, who will believe like you are, but won't be able to see the wounds. It's a hint that Jesus is giving right here that, that this kind of evidence Showing the wound, showing the side, isn't going to be available much longer. There's going to come a time where people who have not seen, who have not touched his hands, who have not seen the wound in the side, will have to believe without this personal experience. Which means Jesus is talking to us here. We haven't seen him. We haven't put our fingers in the wounds. But we either believe or are being called to believe. And for the last few weeks, we've been saying that the resurrection is the most radical event in all of history. It forever changed the course of the human story. And we've said that, uh, along with the Apostle Paul, that without the resurrection, Christianity is meaningless. There's no forgiveness, and Jesus was actually wrong when he said, it is finished on the cross, if he didn't come back from the dead. But you and I, we don't get this proof that Thomas did, do we? So then, how can we believe? Let me offer up uh, the following sort of proofs to us. This is going to be a little bit more of a, uh, there's lots of points in this sermon. This is, not a, this is a little more academic-ish a bit. But let me offer up some evidence for the resurrection because it's overwhelming. And the evidence for Jesus' resurrection can't just be brushed off as something that some uneducated, backwoods people thought 2,000 years ago. It's just some myth, so forget about it. So, how can we believe the resurrection? First, let's deal with a couple of the common objections to the resurrection. They say, things that people say, no, that didn't happen. This is what actually, what really happened. The first is that people suggest that maybe the disciples stole Jesus' body. The idea is that since Jesus talked about rising from the dead, he kind of told them that, you know, in three days I'm going to rise from the dead, just knock this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days, right? The disciples realized, wait a minute, Jesus is dead. So unless something happens, we're going to look like fools. So on the third day, they went, they stole the body and got rid of it just to be like, ha ha, it's gone. And so they said that he had risen from the dead, but his body was just kind of stealthily taken, stolen, and, and, and thrown away somewhere, likely scavenged by animals like every other Roman criminal of the day. And this was actually the first explanation that we find even in the Bible, right? In John's gospel, Mary assumes that someone came and took the body. If you've taken his body, just tell me where it is. Right? She says that in the beginning of John uh, 20, 19, 20. And then also in Matthew chapter 28, 
we read that the Jewish soldiers, when, when the tomb was found empty, the Jewish leaders bribed the soldiers to say the disciples stole the body while they were sleeping. There's a couple of problems with this. The first, if this is the case, if the body was stolen, then there could not have been any appearances of Jesus' body later, his resurrected body, right? He's still dead. He's not showing up anywhere. The second is that the tomb was guarded by as many as 16 Roman soldiers. These were highly trained warriors, the elites of the elites, and they did not fall asleep on the job. And even if for whatever reason that morning they fell asleep and the disciples showed up and like, they're all asleep, let's go get them. Remember, there was a stone that had been rolled down, you know, an incline and locked into place in front of this grave. Hundreds of pounds, maybe thousands of pounds of stone. So if these disciples showed up and then tried to move this stone, you know what moving a thousand pound stone does? It wakes up 16 elite Roman soldiers and it's not good. It's over for you. So the disciples did not steal the body. Maybe the second one is, is maybe the Jewish authorities or the Roman authorities stole the Bible. And so, okay, if this crowd didn't do it, maybe this other crowd did. I was still trying to wrestle around with the idea that the body was stolen. But if we want to say this happened, if you want to say either the Jews or the Romans stole the body, we have to ask a really important question. Why? Why would they do that? The Romans couldn't have cared any less. And the Jews, it was their idea to guard the tomb, to make sure it wasn't stolen. There was absolutely no benefit for them for this body to not be there. And so if the body was still there, the Jewish leaders would have produced it and said, no, 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 Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. He's right here. Come and look. Okay, so the body wasn't stolen. There's no real good grounding for that. The third common objection to the resurrection is the disciples went to the wrong tomb. They got mixed up. They were like overcome by grief. Uh, you know, it had been a couple of days, so instead of going, as I said, instead of going to Grizzly Crescent, they went to Grizzly Street, and they found another cave, and it was empty, and resurrection. The problem with this, again, comes back to the Roman and Jewish leaders. All they would have had to do is point to the right tomb. No, you guys are wrong. You're on the wrong street. It's here. Here he is, still guarded, still dead. It's over. And still... Even at that point, you still have to deal with the idea that Jesus showed up. There were people who claimed that they saw Jesus. Even under the threat of death, they testified that they had been with the resurrected Jesus. Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 15, says that Jesus appeared to, to Peter and then the twelve. He also appeared to 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, which is his way of saying, go ask them. This didn't happen that long ago. Some of them have fallen asleep, some have died, but most are still there. He continues, Paul does, and says, and then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one born at the wrong time, he appeared to me. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses that said they saw Jesus alive after he was crucified, including all of the disciples who were willing to die for him, and all ultimately did die for him. The fourth common objection is that Jesus didn't actually die. This is something called the swoon theory. It first kind of shows up around the 1700s, but it made a comeback in the 1960s, so this isn't that long ago. There's a book written called The Passover Plot. It's how we're going to explain. This didn't really happen and kind of debunk Christianity. Jesus didn't really die. 
The idea is that he didn't actually die on the cross, and because he didn't actually die on the cross then, he wasn't actually resurrected. He just maybe passed out on the cross. He, he looked dead. He seemed dead. Again, these ignorant people from hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago, they don't know dead when they see it. He just passed out from exhaustion or pain or blood loss or something. Or in the, mir- the words of Miracle Max from the Princess Bride, Jesus was only mostly dead. And as we all know, something that's mostly dead is still slightly alive. And so that's kind of the crux of the argument. Since Jesus was still slightly alive, three days later, rejuvenated by the cold air in the tomb, he got himself up, moved the stone, somehow dealt with the Roman guards, walked around and claimed that he rose from the dead. Now this, this is a recent thing. Swoon theories, the 60s aren't that far back, right? Still be young, and it's from the 60s. But it's, it's still around. And there's at least, I think, two major objections. There's plenty of objections, but there's two major objections to this. First off is this. If the swoon theory is what happened, if Jesus didn't actually die and just was rejuvenated, came out, and claimed to have died and risen again, then Jesus is the most manipulative, false, lying, deceitful religious figure in all of human history. Okay? That's a problem for us. But second, for the swoon theory to be true, Jesus had to survive being flogged by the Roman guards, getting 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails, which is a, a whip with leather straps that had metal balls and chunks of bone and chunks of glass in it so that when you hit something with it, like wood, it would stick into wood and it wouldn't come out. So you'd have to like rip it out. So if it sticks into a, a tree, imagine somebody's back, 39 lashes, 40 was considered the death penalty. So uh, being gracious, we'll back it off to 39 instead of 40. He had a crown of thrones driven into his head, not gently placed on his head, not even just pressed on his head, but driven and beaten into his head. And these thorns were not like the rose bushes that, Al, I can't wait to see your rose bushes come up soon. It's, it's spring, I'm getting excited. They're not like the rose bushes that will be in front of the building soon. These were uh, thorns from date palms. So they would have been like three or four inch long nails beaten into his head. We do read that that he then had to carry his cross from wherever the trial happened out to where he was to be crucified and he couldn't make it. He collapsed under the weight and the the trauma that his body had already taken so someone else actually had to carry the, the cross there and somehow he got himself there. So he couldn't physically do that even. But once he got to the hill, then he got stretched out on this cross and they put like railway spikes through his wrists, through his ankles, uh, what we now know as being some of the most densely packed nerve-ending areas in the human body, and they stuck him on that cross. The, The pain would have been so intense that that's where we get the word excruciating. And once he hung there, once a person was hung on the cross, they would essentially suffocate and choke to death because their arms are up so high, their body was, was dying, and it would take everything to step up on their feet who, with nails through them, by the way, to just grab a breast and then go back down. And finally, Jesus had a spear stuck into his side to make sure he was dead. And we're told that, that blood and water flowed out, which is something that uh, there's a... Uh, American Medical Association 
article printed a number of years ago in the 80s, I think it was, talking about the physical death of Jesus Christ. And so they probably wouldn't go as far to say Jesus was raised from the dead, but they looked at the evidence of the death and said, no question, Jesus of Nazareth died. And the, the, the water and blood that came out of the side that the Bible records happens to a heart when it's dead. There's more to it than my elementary explanation, but he was dead. And he was pronounced dead by those same Roman death experts that guarded his tomb. And they would have been killed for saying he was dead if he wasn't dead. And if that's not enough, Swoon theorists would then say that Jesus was wrapped up in his grave clothes. We re read the other week, 75 pounds of, of, of uh, spices and, and burial spices. He was stuck into the, a cool, refreshing grave, cave, spent three days without food, without water, without medical attention. And then on the third day, just kind of got up unwrapped himself, moved that thousand-pound stone again, overpowered the Roman killing machine guard out front, and then just started walking around town as if nothing had happened. He had the wounds in his hands, but you know, his disfigured face looked normal, his back looked fine. Like, Let me suggest Jesus actually being resurrected is easier to believe than the swoon theory. So those are some of the most common objections to the resurrection. But what proof do we have? Again, we don't have the nails. We don't have the side. But here are uh, 10 proofs that we have. First, we've got the four Gospels. We have these four ancient biographies of Jesus that were all written either by an eyewitness or based on eyewitness testimony. They were written and circulated while many other eyewitnesses to all the events were still alive and thus could verify or deny them. And all four of them say that Jesus rose from the dead. These four Gospels were also supplemented by all kinds of letters that were passed around, written again by eyewitnesses. Some of them we have in our Bibles. And they also said that Jesus died by crucifixion and rose from the dead. Now, pointing to the Bible as evidence for what the Bible says is, you know, some people wouldn't like that. But number two, even around the time, we have both pagan and Jewish writers reporting that Christians believed that Jesus rose from the dead. These authors have nothing to gain from saying this. We've got a, a Roman author, uh, Tacitus. We've got a Jewish historian, Josephus. Both say Jesus of Nazareth was killed, and they're saying that he's back. Third, lots of eyewitnesses died because they said Jesus was resurrected. We talked about this a little bit, but many, many, many early Christians paid with their lives for this belief and likely would have been spared death if they had recanted. Said, no, okay, this, this wasn't right. Uh, I was lying. They would have got their lives back. Uh, Chuck Colson, uh, how many know who Chuck Colson is? Okay, a few, perfect, excellent. He was a guy, uh, you can correct me later if I get this wrong, but he was a part of the Nixon administration during Watergate, right? Okay, perfect. But he also went on to have a prison ministry and is a prolific Christian writer as well. And he wrote this. He said, I know that the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men, the disciples, testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. 
Every one was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were true, if it were not true, excuse me. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. He says, you're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Again, this isn't us sticking our, our fingers in wounds proof, but it just keeps stacking up, right? Next is John's eyewitness account itself. Now, all four Gospels are important, of course, but maybe John's, I don't know if we can say John's is especially so, but we can, we can glean even more from John's. Uh, many today will claim that, that, that the Gospels, and especially John's Gospel, are just kind of nice stories and metaphors, and we can file them on the shelf next to other myths from ancient bygone eras. But we know that John clearly knew the difference in writing a, a narrative, a biography, a gospel, which was a, a more common genre back then, and telling a story that's overflowing with symbolism and metaphor. How do we know that? Help me out. Revelation. Revelation. We have two books written by him. One is, is historical. It's an, an, an effort to display and present the life of Jesus and, and show you know, the, the, the Spirit working in and through Jesus and all this. And the other one is filled with metaphors and symbols. It's a different genre altogether. So we know Jean, John, John, John. We know John knew the difference. John wouldn't have accidentally written fantasy when he was meaning to write biography. That's what we're saying here. Fifth, the historical evidence itself. The uh, historical evidence tells us and shows us that the grave was empty, the clothes were left behind neatly, the stone was rolled away, the body was never found, uh, the grave was guarded by Roman soldiers, and no one ever claimed to steal the body. And we can piece that together from Bible, extra Bible, all sorts of places. Six, post-resurrection appearances. Again, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, how could he appear to people? Other than Paul on the road to Damascus, we have 11 recorded times where Jesus appeared to people. These appearances were to men and women, to individuals, to couples, to groups, and at least one crowd, right? We already read that text where, where Paul says they read to one group of 500 brothers and sisters, most of whom are still alive today. These appearances were inside. They were outside. They were in different locations. They were different times of the day. He was physically touched, audibly heard, visually seen, and he ate food in the presence of witnesses. Some would say that, no, 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 all these, these appearances, they were just hallucinations. It, it has been said, again, I don't want to misquote, by a, a prominent American, either medical or psychological association, that it would be impossible for 500 to experience the same hallucination. It, it, it's, it's maybe a sort of plausible explanation, but it doesn't hold water when you actually think. That sounded harsh. When you actually consider the evidence, hallucination isn't a possible explanation. None of these witnesses that he appeared to believe that Jesus would rise from the dead. We saw that, right? The disciples show up and they're like, what's going on? Mary's like, where's the body? Before he rose from the dead, none of them thought he would rise from the dead. And all of them knew him before the cross, and so they knew this was the same Jesus after the cross. This wasn't like Jesus had a twin, and Jesus died, and then his twin brother all of a sudden showed up on the scene. They knew this was the same guy. Seventh, the location of the Christian movement. The Christianity exploded right in the place where Jesus was buried, right in the same land. In the same land. 
The core claim was that the grave was empty and Jesus was alive. So let's walk to that hole and look inside and see if there's a body in there. The explosion happened weeks after his death, not generations and generations later, the time it would take for myth or, or story to develop. And it happened in the place where those who would have said, yes, Jesus resurrected, he is alive, he was, they were in the place where they would have faced hostility and opposition and persecution. It would have been way easy for them, for the 12, to say, okay, guys, Jesus said he was going to do this. Seems he's dead. We stole the body. We took care of that, I guess, maybe, hopefully. Let's walk ourselves to, like, Spain or Africa or, or India hundreds and hundreds of miles away from any other witnesses or eyewitnesses, and we could just tell the story of this man, Jesus, that we knew, and he died and he raised again. They'd be like, amazing, we're in. No, no, it happened right where everyone saw what was going on. The location was, is important. Uh, eighth, this wasn't a random event. Jesus said he would die, and he said he would die by crucifixion, and that he would be buried, and he would rise on the third day. Only the Roman authorities could crucify so this was something that was, um, I'll put it in quotes, air quotes, out of Jesus' control. He couldn't just kind of set it up to be like, okay, guys, let's crucify me, and it's going to be good. This was something that had to have other things going on. It wasn't a random event. It was predicted. It was foretold. Ninth, there were messianic prophecies. Jesus' death took place in the context of centuries and centuries and centuries of prophecy and waiting and hopeful expectation that there would be a Messiah that came from God who would die and rise. And Jesus claimed to fulfill all of these. And last for this list, everything going on is part of a larger story here. Pastor and author George Sinclair writes, the death and resurrection of Jesus take place in the context of an overarching story that has deep and powerful insights into the human condition. His life, death, and resurrection took place in the context of a body of writings that have proved for millennia to be wise and insightful about the human condition. That's the Bible. It speaks to the mess inside of us every single day, doesn't it? He says, these writings, the, the Bible, have been the basis for the, the development of science and human rights and good government. And sometimes we bung those things up, don't we? He says, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus took place in the context of a worldview that is unsurpassed in its breadth, depth, coherence, consistency, and emotional and rational power. Whew. There is plenty of reason for us to believe today. Plenty. Uh, N.T. Wright, who's one of the top New Testament scholars alive today, wrote a massive 800-plus page academic work on the history uh, surrounding the resurrection event of Jesus. And in it, he says, he summarizes this way, he says, nobody would have ever thought up or made up the resurrection because nobody then believed these things were possible. There's nowhere in paganism, nowhere in Judaism, nowhere in any worldview or philosophy did anyone ever conceive, posit, contemplate, or even suggest that such a thing could or ever had taken place. And so he concludes that the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings and the sightings of the risen Jesus in order to explain a faith they already had. They developed that faith. They didn't have to come up with this story to explain a truth that 
couldn't be made sense otherwise. This happened, and their faith grew into that. Well, so what? John tells us kind of the so what as he gives us his whole purpose for writing his gospel. Look at verse 30. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that aren't written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. John's saying, even if we want to be skeptics or cynics, there is enough evidence here in his gospel, forget the other three, there's enough to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that changes everything. And we can get life in his name. There's a couple other places, there's lots of other places in the New Testament where we get kind of described what this life can look like. I want to look at a few. Uh, remember, the New Testament is the four Gospels that describe Jesus' life. Then comes Acts, which is kind of the, the birthing and spreading of the church. And then it's just letter, 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 letter to describe how that church spread and the issues that came up and, and all those things. So a couple of these other places. Ephesians 1, 19 to 20. Paul writes this. I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the early realms. Do you catch that little phrase about the life that Jesus brings? The incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe. The power that resurrected Jesus brings us life. It's at work in and through every single one of us who believes. God can take your life no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're heading through right now, and he can bring life to any area that feels dead. He can bring about any new beginning that you need. Look at Romans 6.4 as well. Paul writes, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so, too, so we too may walk in newness of life. We can be renewed. We can be resurrected by this power in a sense right now and then in another sense later as well. To believe that in Jesus means that we have the power to, to live the way God calls us to live too. And this Jesus power is way better than any self-help podcast or webinar or seminar that we could attend because it's not about you and me trying to muster up the courage and muster up the strength to, to, to break bad habits, to, to free ourselves from addiction, to, to do good. It's about God's power in us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and available to us. And the Spirit of God brings freedom. You might not have seen it yet in your life, but I, I bet, even if you haven't seen it, it's happened. But there are millions of Christians that continue to testify today that they have seen the power of God that has radically changed their lives. And I would no doubt guess that there's some of them in the room right here. Marriages have been restored. Long, habitual, destructive patterns and behaviors and addictions have been broken in Jesus' name. Finances have been straightened out. Job difficulties overcome. Parenting challenges met. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. The resurrection of Jesus matters because it shows us that the power of God is there to change our life. 
The Apostle Paul would say this about the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, then we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. If the resurrection didn't happen, then all of this is still ultimately meaningless. But Christianity maintains that the resurrection did happen. And the Bible says, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have been given brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. That means hope. That means embracing a message. And that means life. This morning, I want to invite you to say with Thomas as we respond to Jesus, my Lord and my God. The, the most important question any of us need to answer in this life is, who is Jesus? And Thomas hits the answer, hits the nail right on the head with his answer. So I want to invite you to believe, to give your yes to Jesus this morning. You don't have to have all the implications figured out. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to uh, get, get all your questions, all your doubts, all your wonderings figured out. You can start today. And let me encourage you that when questions come, when doubts happen, don't run away, but lean in. Lean into the questions, because there's answers. Lean into community, because we can shoulder one another's questions and, and concerns and, and doubts and wonders and worries. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are so patient with us. And we see it again in this text. So Thomas missed it and Thomas blurts out, unless I get what I want, I won't believe. And you came and you gave him what he said he wanted. I pray this morning, I know that we, we went through a lot of things. I pray that maybe one or two would just stick in our minds as good, solid reminders that this isn't myth, this isn't made up. This isn't just some feel-good story to make a group of people manageable. But this is truth. This is, this is the story of human, human history. Jesus, I, I pray for every one of us that can hear my voice, that you would help grow belief in us. Wherever we're at, give us another step that we would believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and that you would continue to pour out your love, lavish your love on us, and that we would have life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Arnie, would you come?